0: It is so good to be with you all today, and it was good to be gathered in my office this morning with those who had some role up here on the platform in today's service. I hope you have your Bibles or devices open to 2 Samuel 11. We will get to our text uh, in just a moment, our text for today, the passage that Jamie Just read. One of the things that we want to do when we are in the Old Testament is be very near the cross, near the gospel, near the New Testament. We want to read the Old Testament in light of the new and better covenant, the covenant in which we live. And so I will be throughout today's sermon connecting this passage with various passages in the New Testament. I believe it's important to do that almost always when we are reading or studying or preaching the Old Testament. In fact, before we get to today's text, let's do that right now. The subject of today's passage, the theme and subject of today's passage has to do with spiritual deception and David being blinded. David giving in to his temptation. David living as though in these moments, in these paragraphs of chapter 11, as though God does not exist. And I want us to be honest with ourselves, and even though uh, I don't think anyone here has ever done anything like what David has done here, our hearts are actually very much like David, in that we have temptations, that we succumb to, where we live as though God doesn't even exist. So I want to begin, before we get to today's passage, with a New Testament passage on the screen. Look at it with me, 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, the evil one, our enemy, is crafty, church, he is after you and me, and he was after David, a man after God's own heart, an incredibly mature believer. Back to this First Corinthians 11, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, think of your mind, I should be thinking of my mind, your minds will be led astray from the, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, We are like David in the sense that our minds are led astray from the simplicity of being devoted to Christ. What does that mean? I understand it to mean the simplicity of loving Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is the essence of Christianity, of our faith. It it, it is simple. It is incredibly difficult to do, to live life loving God and obeying God and being full of his joy, but it is simple to articulate and to understand. But the evil one is sophisticated and crafty, and he works on us, and he has worked on David. I want to do a brief summary now. Our text for today begins in verse 14, but maybe some of you haven't been here the last few weeks, or you have, and you may need a refresher as to what has happened before we get to verse 14. And what has happened, in my mind, hangs a lot on this phrase in verse 2 of chapter 11. In the ESV, it's late one afternoon. Late one afternoon, David was out on his deck, and he saw a beautiful, naked woman. Late one afternoon. And from that moment until our passage today that we will get to in a few moments, David has been blinded. He has been led astray from the simplicity and purity that has characterized his life of being devoted to God. He sends someone to find out who this beautiful woman is. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I, in, in light of Scripture, my thinking of that, at that moment is that he was seeking another wife. Polygamy was a cultural norm in his day, especially for a king. It's something outrageous in our day, but we really shouldn't make much of that because we essentially have the same culture. We have serial adultery or moving from person to person. As far as sexual partner, we just don't marry them. That's acceptable in our culture today. In David's day, it was acceptable as well under the unbiblical guise of marriage. So I think he was seeking another wife when he says, hey, somebody go find out who she is. And then he learns that this is a married woman. And knowing that, he sends for her anyway. And she comes. This all began late one afternoon. And they commit adultery. And she is pregnant. And David begins a cover-up. A cover-up so that it is not known that David would be the father of this child. That cover-up fails. And so we come to our passage today and verse 14. But I want to, again, link this with New Testament passages. Let me give you one more before we begin verse 14. James 1. But each one, that includes you and me and King David is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his or her own lust. And lust might better be translated there, evil desire. We're not speaking about sexual lust here. We're speaking about any kind of evil desire for a man or a woman. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That, I think, in many ways is the banner over 2 Samuel 11. The last thing we should do in studying and hearing 2 Samuel preach is coming away going, I can't believe David did that. Oh, my goodness. We should come away from 2 Samuel 11 saying, God, help me whatever my evil desires are, gossip, Coveting, making myself look better than others, lying, whatever it is, help me not to be deceived, God. This is how we should come away. But David has been deceived, and he is blind, and his cover-up plan has failed. And so he goes to the third level of his cover-up plan. And now we are finally at today's text. Look with me at verse 14. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab is one of his commanders out on the field at war. And he sent it with Uriah. So church, let's let's reflect on verse 14. We could just fly past here. But what is going on? David is planning to kill Uriah. He sends this plot to kill him. With whom? (laughs) With Uriah. God wants us to notice that. Uriah is such a man of integrity that David can write a a letter plotting to kill him, seal it up, give it to him, say, hey, will you you take this to Joab? And David knows Uriah is not going to read it. God wants us to see the blindness of David. Because you and I are often blind ourselves to our sin. And David is blind. And so he sends this letter with Uriah, verse 15. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Don't let that sentence blow by you either. Not only is Uriah, most of you know this story, not only is Uriah killed, but other men are killed men who are valiantly serving the king. This all goes back to late one afternoon. Now one of his most faithful men, Uriah, and others are dead. So some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. The consequences of sin are massive. An innocent man is executed at, his, at an Israelite monarch's whim. And not only is he executed, but there is collateral damage, and some of the men in David's army fell because of this disgusting and immoral plot to cover up what all began late one afternoon. On his deck. Deuteronomy 27 says this, one of the laws for the old covenant was cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. It's an important law because God knows that some people, particularly people with power and authority, will get away with things that others wouldn't. And so the implication of this law is your striking down of your neighbor was not caught. And you were not punished. The sword didn't come to bear. So you should know that cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. David knew this law. But he is blind to it right now. He is blind to it. It all began late one afternoon. Now, as we look at the first few verses of today's passage, David is massively culpable and responsible and the primary figure, but there is someone else who has failed here. Anybody? Who is it? A lot of people, but one of his men, Joab, One of the responsibilities of a soldier in charge of others is not to carry out an evil order. It is fundamental in a military, in any military, in any kind of combat that you care for the lives of your men next to you and with you and under your command. And so Joab gets a letter from Uriah to do this. Joab could have, let's give Joab the benefit of the doubt, and we don't know what he was thinking, but maybe he was thinking Uriah was a spy for the Philistines. Maybe if that were the case, I'm just merely hypothesizing here, maybe Joab might send a letter back and say, hey, might we execute him in a different way than what you've suggested which is going to put men at risk. So it is not only David, but the circles when something that David wasn't looking for, but he's out on his deck late one afternoon, leads to these circles of wickedness and evil. And Joab is caught up in this. Now, I want to give Joab the benefit of the doubt and say, there's some good reasons that he got caught up in this. One of those would be, what an outstanding man David has been. We've looked at this before several times over the last month or two. Going back to 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed king by God through Samuel, his life for the next 35 years, has been one characterized by a man of integrity who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's been a few little bumps here, but in general, he has been an incredible leader who has brought justice and equality and safety to the land of Israel. He has taken Jerusalem. He's been burdened that, that there isn't a temple. He, 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 he's just been so exemplary so I don't want to be too hard on Joab but I think Joab should have done something at least like what I said if he gave David his commanding officer the king the benefit of doubt and said hey this is a good motive to have Uriah killed which it wasn't but if it were if he were a spy or he was a wicked person there's another way to do it uh king Can, can we do it another way so he has reason to be where he is. He has been influenced by David's godliness and character generally up until this point. Look on the screen at Second Samuel 7, where God spoke... Through Nathan the prophet to David, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. We know he was the, the, the lesser David who points to the greater David, the Messiah. God doesn't say this about very many people, so when you get an order from someone like this... You could see where you're just going to follow that order. But he should not have. He should not have. I want to suggest that Joab was caught up in something that you and I can also be caught up in what people today called, psychologists today call a halo effect. It's a tendency to like everything about a particular person. And that tendency can cloud our decision-making. And it is not the primary point of this passage, but I think it is an important point of this passage. And so I've organized three points today out of today's text, and the first one, and they're all three prayers. Lord, help me to be aware of the halo effect. Help me to be aware of liking someone so much that when they may be taking a turn for the worse, that I wouldn't be able to see it and I would be caught up in what is going on. The halo effect is something that is very real in the world today as it was back in David's day. Anybody, uh, anybody remember this guy? Uh, Bernie Madoff? Anybody remember him? He... Uh, spent his last uh, years in prison, for those of you that don't know uh, who he is. He uh, is an American financier who executed the largest Ponzi scheme in history, defrauding thousands of investors out of tens of billions of dollars over the course of at least 17 years and, and probably longer. How did Bernie Madoff do that? Well, how he did it is he had an incredible reputation. You had to be an extremely high net worth individual to be a part of his world. And this is kind of what his reputation was. His reputation on the street, if you were somebody who had assets of maybe 50 million or 100 million or a billion dollars, I know that's a lot of you. (laughs) If you had assets like that, the word on the street was, this is the guy you want to give your money to. His returns are extraordinarily high. He's the guy, you probably can't get a a dinner with him or coffee with him, but if you do, this is who you want to manage your portfolio. That was the word on the street for over a decade if you were in in that club as many of you are. I'm joking. Um, But what happened? What happened is it was a scam. So person A, way back here, gave him his, you know, $500 million, and then this next person gave him his $30 million, and this next person gave him his billion dollars and he overwhelmingly spent that money to enrich himself, and he had enough new clients because of the halo effect over and over again that when this person way back here says, hey, I need uh, 30 million of mine, he would would take this most recent person that just gave him a billion, he would take 30 million of it and give it to him, and he got away with this for years and years and years. Incredibly intelligent people who had massive resources some of whom inherited, but some of them were wise enough to make that kind of money. They were gifted and skilled to make enormous amounts of money, but they were not exempt from the halo effect and turning their funds over to Bernie Madoff. This is something we see in the first few verses of today's passage. Let's come back to our text In verse 18. So this happens. The letter went. Joab did what he was commanded to do. And Uriah is dead. And others have died as well. So Joab sends a full account of the battle by letter to David. Verse 18. Verse 19. He instructed the messenger... When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? So, this is Joab, the general on the field, sending word back with his messenger, telling the messenger, hey, this might happen. As he reads this, he might get really upset. Why would he get really upset? Because David was a great warrior, he was a strategic expert in military battle. And Joab did something that Joab would never do and that David would never want done. He made terrible decisions and put the lives of men at risk, taking them near the wall to fight. And he makes an allusion to a famous moment in ancient Israel history about battle, where a certain woman in Judges 9 threw an upper millstone, if you will, a very heavy KitchenAid mixer, She threw it over the wall, out of the kitchen, and crushed this dude's skull. Okay, I've never been a Marine, but if you're a a Marine, this is not how you want to die. By a KitchenAid mixer falling on your head. This is how he died. This is alluded to here. David might get upset because we did not follow best practice militarily. Back to the text. If he asks you this, I'm in verse 21, then say to him, also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The reason I did this bonehead military plan is because of your command to kill Uriah. The Hittite. Verse 22. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. This is a a pro-life passage, if you will, or an anti-pro-life passage. In other words, we should see how incredibly careless David is with the image bearers of God, human beings. Some of the king's men died. We don't even know their names because of this wicked command to overcome, to accomplish a cover-up that began all late one afternoon. And then he finishes verse 24, moreover, moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. The collateral damage, physically and spiritually, is massive. It's multi-generational. It's huge. Lord, help me to open my eyes to sin's collateral damage. And specifically, Lord, help me, help Mike to open my eyes to my sin's collateral damage. Pharisees think this way, oh, I'm thinking about my neighbor now. I'm thinking about this person. I'm thinking about that person. As we read God's word, he wants us to think primarily and first about ourselves. And the word of God is designed to read us. And we are designed to see in this painful chapter of Second Samuel 11, the massive collateral damage, the ripple effects of giving into temptation, where there's this little piece of pleasure, followed by massive misery and consequences and spiritual and physical death. This is the truth God wants us to internalize, to open our eyes, not primarily to David's sin, but to our own, and to avoid it and to hate it and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. David is in this condition of what you see is all there is. He's blind to spiritual realities. The enemy is crafty, And you and I need a wide view, a wide view of life. God has disappeared. For you and me, the gospel can disappear. The reality that God wants us to love him and love our neighbors can disappear and we get focused in on some thing. It's not Usually something that's going to make the headlines like this, it's usually something simpler. Our idols are often difficult to see. That's often how I see the enemy working in my own life and in other people's lives. Where we get a narrow focus on something that is just off. We act in moments as though God doesn't exist. We are blind to our blindness. We are self-deceived. What David sees is all there is. And he saw Bathsheba. He has a child coming, and he is covering it up in a terrible way. Let's finish up today's passage, verse 25. We read 25. Um, Did I read 25? I lost my point. Where are we? Help me out. What's that? We're at 26, right? 26. We're at 25. All right. Thank you. Thank you. We're at 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Oh, my God. Don't let this upset you. Every pro-life person right there should just be crying. Don't let this upset you. A bunch of dudes died because of what I saw one afternoon and wanted. Don't let it upset you. Go, 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 go execute the battle plan as, as we should have normally and take the city. That, that power and ability was within the Israelite army. But they didn't do that because of David's order. It's extremely, extremely painful to read. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. As I was standing back there, as Jamie read the passage, someone near me said, you think? It's also translated this way. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The amount of detail in these paragraphs, going all the way back to Second Samuel 11 and verse 1, gives us an eagerness for repentance. We want to see David turn way before it gets to this point, but he hasn't. And so the message for me and for you, as we want God's Word to read our heart more than we want to just simply get the facts of Scripture, is, Lord, help me to repent quickly when I go astray. Help Mike Ernst to repent quickly. I'm going to go astray. Help me to be quick to repent. Help me to have a wide view. Help me to see the gospel, to see Jesus, to not act like an atheist as David was here. These points have been overwhelmingly negative because the text is overwhelmingly negative. So let's have, it. this is the word of God, it's good, but it's, 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 it's negative, right? Being, being aware of this trap of the halo effect, of, of, of the nasty collateral damage, to repent quickly. So I'd like some positive. Would you like some positive? So some positive. We might ask the question here, okay, I've got these negatives, so repent quickly. Help me, God, to be aware of sin's collateral damage, to, to, to put that in the light, and to be aware of the halo effect. How else can we prevent this spiritual blindness that we all experience at times and we end up regretting very much what we've done. We could live the way that they lived in the first century, the church, in the book of Acts. They were continually devoting themselves to four things. Number one, the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of the new covenant. They were continually devoting themselves to that teaching. This isn't an antidote to not only this problem, but this is a a solution to joy and living life the way that God intended us to live. To immersing ourselves. Not in social media, not in movies, not in books, not in our hobbies, but we are mostly devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We are intaking the Word of God every day in all kinds of different ways, reading it, listening to it. Four things, continually devoted to the Apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So glad you're here this morning. I'm so thankful for our men's group and the men that I met with on Friday after being away and traveling some some weeks to be back in this intimacy of fellowship. I'm so thankful for the one-on-one meeting I have where somebody knows in, in a deep way my life and my heart. By the way, David has had someone who has known his heart and life in a very deep way who, who was his close friend, and he's gone. And do we have another Jonathan in the text? We don't. There is no Jonathan around David right now. There isn't someone that knows his inner thoughts, his struggles, his temptations. Shall I collect another wife? Let's be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Let's be devoted to fellowship, especially on those intimate levels where people know your thoughts your temptations, where you spend time woman to woman, man to man with someone else and say, hey, here's what's going on inside of me. Will you please pray for me? Yes, I will. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which includes the Lord's Supper, but I take this to mean mostly meals together, regular time together, fellowship But the breaking of bread, there's something special about having a meal together, which included the Lord's Supper, often in the early church. And finally, prayer. This is what they were devoted to. This is what we are to be devoted to. And this will help us not only avoid the spiritual blindness, but will help us to live the joy-filled life that God has called us to. Close with words from Matthew Henry. He says this. He says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with, with which the tempter, the evil one, baits his hooks. The evil one baited his hook in just a way that David came swimming along one afternoon and just bit hard. And the consequences downstream... Are massive but the joy of the Lord will help us to discern that I don't want to bite that hook it looks good I desire her from the deck but I know that that will not satisfy it is a ploy it is a trick It is the enemy on the end. And he's just just got it casted just right. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures so that we can go and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when we see that woman from the deck instead of getting her. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. All of us have moments where we're spiritually blind. We say things, we think things, we do things that we regret. Help us to be devoted to you. Help us to have intimate fellowship with other believers where we reveal the struggles and temptations deep within us It shouldn't be surprising that if we're not healed, that it may be because we're not confessing to one another and have the strength of other believers who are lifting us up and praying for us and know what our battles are. Help us to break bread, to have meals together, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and to be devoted to prayer. We pray in Jesus' name.